great to be worshiping with you. Keep your Bibles open, please, to Colossians chapter 1. I will be referring to it throughout the message. Uh, last week, we began a new teaching series called uh, Renewal's Core Values, uh, coming out of a conviction that uh, as we continue to establish our church uh, as Renewal Mainline, we want to make sure uh, that we are aligned uh, to what God values, what He deems as important for our church. The analogy drawn was, uh, instead of seeing church like the way that we see many other things, a, a, a consumeristic center where, where we simply receive goods and services, uh, we need to see church as a place of worship, a place where God himself is the center of all things, not ourselves. So in the coming weeks, uh, we're going to be studying uh, various topics such as uh, worship, a life transformation, community, mercy, and justice, and so forth. But before we hit those individual topics, last week I mentioned, uh, we want to spend a couple of weeks on what undergirds all of these things. It's not just simply mercy or community, but gospel-centered community, gospel-centered justice and mercy. So we're going to spend a couple of weeks, including today, talking about what this gospel means. We know that the content of the gospel is the fact that Jesus came to earth, fully God, fully man, and he lived, died, and was raised again on the third day. That's the content of the gospel. And the false assumption that many of us have is once you believe that, once you believe the gospel, that's when you become a Christian and that's when Christianity starts. So we tend to believe the content of the gospel to be the ABCs of Christianity. And here at Renewal, what we teach is the gospel is not the ABCs, but the A through Zs. Because that same gospel is going to be what empowers and what motivates and what actually influences the way you do everything in life, from the way that you live your life at schools to at homes, the decisions you make, to the way we do these things like worship, community, and mercy, and justice, and so forth. It is driven and motivated and empowered by the gospel. Last week, we studied uh, the personal gospel, and we uh, talked about how God is the one who relentlessly pursues after you, whether you find yourself running away from God physically, whether you are with God, but far from him spiritually. And we studied this prodigal God. And after studying the personal gospel, now today what we want to study is what we call the cosmic gospel. Because the gospel is not only an individual affair between me and God, but it has cosmic world implications. It is much bigger than our individual lives. Let me read an excerpt uh, written by another pastor. He says, the dimensions of Christ's finished work, the gospel, it's both individual and it is cosmic. They range from being a personal pardon for sin individual forgiveness to the final resurrection of our bodies and also the restoration of the whole world. Now that's the good news. 
where individually I will be renewed, but also cosmically all of creation will be restored and renewed. So the gospel, it's not just establishing a two-way relationship. What he says is there's a three-way relationship. God and his people and also what we call the created order. Every single thing in this earth will be brought together in Christ. And that's what we mean by this profound, far-reaching, cosmic gospel. So that's the question uh, today. How does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, something that happened 2,000 years ago, impact this created order, the world, the universe, and not only our individual lives, but all of history? Uh, We're going to do that today uh, under three R's. Uh, Number one, uh, Christ's reign. Christ's reign. Number two, Christ's reconciliation. And finally, Christ's resonance. His reign, his reconciliation, and his resonance. So with that introduction, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord for his help as we study his word. Heavenly Father, we humbly come before you this morning expecting you to speak because that is what you promised us that you will speak to your people. God, we know holiness begins not when we feel like we are holy, but when we desire to be holy. And so, God, may it be the desire of everyone here this morning, even if we don't feel spiritual, even if we don't feel holy, God, we want to be. And we know that happens through the power of your word. Help us to embrace your voice this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So number one, Christ's reign, his rule. Uh, Let's look at verse 15 through 20. This small section here is arguably uh, one of the richest sections in the Bible about who Jesus is. If you look at the headings of your English Bibles, it's going to say something like the preeminence of Christ or or the supremacy of of Christ. And because what Paul, the apostle, what he's doing here, he's making sure that we understand that we know who we are talking about when we talk about Jesus. You know, if you go out into the streets on Mainline or the city, or you go anywhere in the world and you ask them who Jesus is, the answer that they're going to give nine out of ten times is a man who lived Walked on this earth 2,000 years ago. He did these great things. He performed these miracles. And perhaps even some of them will say, yes, he died for people's sins. He, he, was, uh, he came to life uh, in, in the incarnation, and, and he died on the cross, which is true. Jesus is fully man. He is fully God. And as we uphold those things, however, we tend to not think about who Jesus is as the Lord of the universe, the God who created all things. We like to think of Jesus simply in human categories. And while we do uphold his humanity, his incarnation, the fact that he lived and walked on this earth, Paul is saying here, but don't forget, Jesus is God. He always was God, always has been God, and always will be God. God. Do not limit Jesus to simply some man that walked on this earth. And the takeaway for us is we tend to think of Jesus. We, we tend to put God into this little box. 
We want to put Jesus, we want him to fit in our hands. We want to be able to comprehend him fully, to put him in an equation, perhaps. We want to be able to think of who Jesus is and to wrap our minds around him, to put a face to him even. Why? So that we can tame him. So that we can think of him in categories that you and I are comfortable with. It's very easy to think of Jesus as man. That's something you and I are very aware of. But think of Jesus as the cosmic Lord of the universe. Our minds can't even start with that. So that's what Paul's reminding us. Don't forget, Jesus is God. He is the Lord of all creation, and you cannot contain this Jesus. You cannot contain him in your minds. He does not fit into your formula. He doesn't fit into your expectations. He is greater than that. Do you remember that scene in the Chronicles of Narnia when they find out about who Aslan is, who's supposed to be Jesus? You know, Susan, she goes, who's Aslan? And the beaver, Mr. Beaver, he says, Aslan is the lion, the great lion. And Susan goes, well, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver goes, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Do you see what what C.S. Lewis is getting across? He's not tame. You cannot tame Jesus Christ. You cannot tame him into your minds thinking that he has to do what I tell him to do. He has to act in the way that I want him to act. Yes, he came into this earth. He walked on this earth as man. And yes, those are categories we can comprehend. But all the while, he is the Lord of the universe. He is not safe. He's not some man we can tame. He's anything but tame or safe. But he's good, and he's powerful. I want us to look at a couple of words that Paul's using here. He starts in verse 15. If you look, he says, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. And that word image, when we think of that word, we tend to think that it's a derivative form, right? This is an image of something. But that's not what Paul is connoting here. When he's writing this word image, he's saying that it is so imprinted, so embedded in something that it is identically the same. In essence, there is no difference. The Greek word here is icon, where we get that word icon. And what that connotes is that there is no difference between uh, this and the original. It is something that directly reflects what it signifies. That's who Jesus is, in very essence, God. The second word that Paul writes is that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, when you and I think of that word firstborn, we tend to think just an older person. If there's a sibling, there's the firstborn, someone who is temporally, chronologically first. But that's not what Paul's saying here. He's not simply saying, out of all of creation, Jesus is the one who was created first. That is not what Paul is saying. But the way that he's using that word firstborn is not one of of, of temporal uh, priority. But what I want to call is this qualitative primacy. He's firstborn over all creation. That's how the NIV puts it. 
He is over all things. He's not firstborn because he came first. No, he's firstborn because he is in his quality above. He rules. He's supreme over all things. And that's why Paul writes in verse 16, for by Jesus, by him, all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This verse should expand our notion of who Jesus is. For in him, all things were created. That tells us in Genesis 1, Jesus was there the whole time. That it was in his fear that Jesus was present in all places when God spoke the universe into existence. It says that all things were made by Jesus. Jesus is the agent. He's the instrument through which God creates. It is in Jesus' wisdom and his power that he creates all things. And all things are created for him, meaning all things are to lead to Jesus. It is for him. Do you see how richly Paul describes Jesus here? And what he's getting us to do is expand your view of who Jesus is. He's not just some man who walked on this earth. He is the cosmic God of the universe. He is supreme. Don't isolate Jesus into these neat spiritual categories that you very well know about on Sundays. But include him on your Mondays, your Tuesdays, and your Wednesdays because every single thing on this earth, every single thing in your life belongs to Jesus and it is meant for him. Abraham Kuyper, this Dutch theologian, he writes this, There is not one square inch over planet Earth of which the risen Christ does not say, Mine. I rule it, and I am supreme over it. There is not an inch in your life where Christ goes and he says, That's not mine. That belongs to me. Your mornings belong to me. Your degree belongs to me. Your very breath belongs to me. It is created for me. In me you have your being, and that is how you live. It is not just a spiritual category that Christ wants, but he wants every aspect of you. Why? Because he created everything about you. Meaning everything of us belongs to him and it is meant to go to him. He's the origin of life. In high school, we learn about uh, Charles Darwin. And we study his work, The Origin of Species. Now, when he wrote that work, there was a German geologist uh, out of all people. And he translated that work into German. His name was Heinrich Bonn. And after translating the work, he wrote an essay And in that essay, his thesis was this burning question that he wanted Darwin to answer. And the question is, what about the origin of life? Talked about the origin of species, how things come about gradually through this selection. But I want to say your work is incomplete unless you can... Draw account, unless you can say how this all came about. Can you give an account to how this happens? Charles Darwin, he responds to that, and he says pretty much, hold on, wait a minute here. 
You can't expect me or any scientist on that matter to answer such questions about the origin of life. My job is to observe, is to hypothesize, is to reproduce experimental procedures. But the origin of life, that's an area that I cannot venture to speak about. He adds this in his third edition of The Origin of Species. He writes, it is no valid objection that science as yet throws no light on the far higher problem on the essence of the origin of life. He says, I don't know. I can't talk about that. I can describe how things I see happening. And the topic of evolution is reserved for another day. But when he can't give an account, we can look to Colossians 1 and say, we know. We know how everything came about. Because it is in Christ. It is by Christ. And it is for Christ that every single thing in this created order was made. There's not an inch on this earth that Christ doesn't say mine. And that includes all science, all the rulers, all the governments, powers, every hurricane you see, every cancer that we see in the hospital. It all bows at the supremacy of Christ. May your minds be expanded to know who we are dealing with. Cannot be tamed. This British journalist in the 70s, he writes this. We look back upon history, and what do we see? We see empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulated and wealth dispersed. Shakespeare, he has written of the rise and fall of these great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. I've heard a crazed, cracked Austrian announced to the world the establishment of a Reich that would last a thousand years. I've seen an Italian clown say he was going to stop and restart the calendar with his own ascension to power. I've seen America wealthier and in terms of military weaponry, more powerful than the rest of the world put together, so that had the American people so desired, they could have outdone a Caesar or an Alexander in the range and scale of their conquest. And he says... But yet, all in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, can be gone. Gone with the wind. Because behind the debris of these solemn supermen and self-styled imperial diplomatists, there stands the gigantic figure of one. Because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom alone, mankind may still have peace the person of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus supreme over everything in your life. I tend not to think of Jesus when I'm vacuuming the house, when I'm driving on 476 when I see these cars pass by me, the things that I think about, the to-do list that I need to take care of, the things that I see on the news, definitely Jesus can't be in that realm. That's far from Jesus. Jesus has control and is in supreme power of every single turn you make on that road, every single errand you need to accomplish, every single thought that comes into mind, every frustration of this world. There's nothing where Jesus says, that's mine, belongs to me. 
Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, God, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths of show, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, your hand guides me. Your right hand shall hold me. Do you believe that in every single aspect of your life? Or do you tame him and say, When it comes to heaven, when it comes to getting what I need in life, Jesus is Lord. But when it comes to my future, when it comes to this sin, when it comes to the way that I want to live, that's not where God reigns. Jesus is supreme over all things, your financial issues, your debt that wrench thrown into your five-year plan, your child's issues at school, that, that sickness in that loved one's life, your depression. He is supreme over all things. Do you live as if you run into Jesus every single moment of your life? One pastor calls Jesus the divine glue that holds everything together, not one square inch. Do you tame Jesus to a comfortable man-made depiction or do you see him as someone who cannot be tamed Christ's reign second point Christ's reconciliation Christ's reconciliation there's a uh, systematic theologian and a philosopher his name is Cornelius Plantinka Jr. sounds very much like a philosopher right to have the name Cornelius Uh, he teaches at Calvin Seminary and he once wrote an essay and it's in response to a movie that he saw in the early 90s. It's a little before my time, called The Grand Canyon. Um, in it stars uh, Danny Glover. And he describes this scene. I want to read it to you. So in this movie, an immigration attorney breaks out of a traffic jam, and he tries to drive around this traffic jam. He doesn't know where he's going, but he's getting more and more alarmed to see that each street that he goes into, it's darker and more deserted than the last. And then a nightmare. His fancy sports car stalls. He manages to call for a tow truck, but before it arrives, five local hoodlums surround the car. They threaten him, and they begin to take his car. But just in time, the tow truck shows up, And its driver, an earnest man, he begins to hook up the sports car, and the gang members protest. Why? Because the driver is interrupting their treasure. And so they start complaining. And the driver, he then takes the group leader aside, and he gives them this introduction. He says, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that. But this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without you asking if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait for his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. Do you see what the message is? There's a human predicament, and it is a perfect description. A description that we know that there are things in this world That is not the way it's supposed to be. The streets are supposed to be safe. There is supposed to be 
justice that fosters peace and mutual goodwill and attention to public good. I want to add to that. There isn't supposed to be broken homes or, or starving families running away from one refugee camp to the next. There shouldn't be these deep psychological issues that we deal with when we struggle with anxiety and depression. Nor should there be cancer. There shouldn't be shootings. There shouldn't be separations between man and wife neglecting their covenant promise to be together for the rest of their lives. There should be a fair evaluation of your work instead of others cutting corners to get ahead. Danny Glover says, everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. And you and I know very well that this is the reality of our lives because even though God created all things good and what we call shalom, which means wholeness. We know that we have broken that shalom in sin. Our spiritual relationship with God is broken, where we don't want to be with him, prone to wander. Our horizontal relationships are strained. Why? Because in every relationship, somehow we want it to be about us, what I can get from this relationship. Our relationship with the world is broken. Sin caused the curse of the ground where we toil. That Excel formula never works, right? That's the curse of sin. Even the way that we view ourselves, it's broken. Where we don't see ourselves in the image of God, but we are tainted with pride and insecurity and fear. That's the reality of the created world the created order. But in verse 20, you see that when Christ died on that cross, he began something. And this is what we call in theology reconciliation. Reconciliation. And he reconciles all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace the blood of his cross. And even you who once were alienated, Hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And this is the key. Why? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. When Jesus died on that cross 2,000 years ago, he received the punishment that you and I deserve for breaking that shalom. And what he starts to do is now he begins the process of bringing his people back to himself through the forgiveness of sins. He's creating a new world order. When he died on that cross, he defeated sin and death and Satan. And what he's doing, he's starting this path, this reconciliation where he's creating a new world order where there is no evil, no sin, no wickedness. Do you see what he's starting here? As we're gathered here Sunday morning, it's a small representation of this new reconciliation. And that's going to be the theme of every single thing that happens in this world. It's all moving towards it. He began it 2,000 years ago. He's going to work to accomplish it throughout history. And that's the final end. 
The way that we need to see everything in this life, from your life to all of history, is this theme of reconciliation where Christ, one by one, is bringing everything to himself. Why? It's created for him. It's meant to glorify him. Your life, your job, your work, everything we see in history, the things that we just can't comprehend, it's all going to be brought. It's going to lead to him. That's the theme. It's that the theme of Jesus in your life where you see every single thing you do tainted in a good way with Jesus' reconciliation. That's the work he's doing in our lives. You know, in college, I began as a uh, music composition major. And there were only six people uh, studying that major out of a school of 30,000 students, Penn State. So there are only five others. And because there was only six of us, uh, they wouldn't give us a class. So every single day, my class looked something like this. I woke up, and I went to my teacher's office, and I would spend an hour and a half just talking about music. And actually, most of the time, he's just pretty much trashing all of my work, saying, there's something wrong with this, there's something wrong with this. After that hour and a half, I go, I eat lunch, and I'm supposed to go under a tree and just write music for the rest of the day. That's how I spent my $10,000 a semester tuition. Now, one of the things my composition teacher told me, he said, you know, Luke, we have this tendency, and I remember this, you have this tendency to doodle. You do a lot of doodling. In your music, there's a lot of these great sound bites, great little things that you're doing here and here and there, but it's not connected. He says, Luke, and I remember this, you would be a great composer for commercials. A lot of these memorable little tunes that just stick with you, can't get out of your head. And I was like, thanks. And he says, let me explain what I mean. And he gave me this illustration. He goes, Luke, what's the most well-known symphonic piece ever known to man? And if you study music, you know the answer is, well, let me give you. Dun, 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 dun. Most commonly well-known, most popular symphonic piece Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. When you see this picture, what do you see? You see four notes. Bam, 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 bam. What does Beethoven do after that? Bam, 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 bam. The same motif in a different way. As the music progresses, what does he do after that? He doubles it in instrumentation and it expands. The whole piece is that same motif. Bum, 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 and he inverts it, he transposes it, he gives different instrumentation, he puts it in a different key, a minor key, and expands that one theme throughout that whole piece. So by the time you walk out of that concert hall, you have what? Bum, 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 in your mind. You can't get it out, right? Do you see how that motif is the glue that holds the whole piece together? Even in that piece, there are parts of that music where it gets very tense, even chaotic. The key becomes minor, but still, it's held together by that bum, 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 bum. Do you see our lives here? Every single part of your life, whether you know it or not, is being divinely held together by this reconciliation that Jesus is doing. He's going to bring every single thing in your life under his rule. 
Even those tense, awkward, difficult, suffering moments where it seems like God is not there. No, but that motif is there underneath it all. Are your eyes open to see what God is doing, the thematic piece of your life? Because I tend to zone into my problems. Right? At any given moment, you ask me what I'm going through, the thing that consumes me is that issue at work. Or that project that's not working out the way that I want it to. And it consumes me. And what Paul is doing, he says, expand your notion. Jesus is in control. Listen for that motif. It's there. We have to believe that Jesus, he holds all things together. That means every minute detail, your dreams and your gifts, your family situation, how hard that exam is going to be. There is that motif of Jesus Christ's rule over that. Why? Because it's created for him. It's going to make this beautiful symphony, and you are part of that. Everything, every inch of your life, Jesus says, it's mine. Christ's reconciliation. Finally, Christ's resonance, his resonance. I want us to understand this topic of Christ's resonance uh, by me explaining a book that I used to read a lot, a series of books growing up. uh, When I went to English as second language classes, uh, some of the books that they recommended to me uh, were these mystery books. Uh, One of the books that I I loved a lot was a book called Encyclopedia Brown. I don't know if it's still being dispersed out today. I think it's the guy version of Nancy Drew. Not that there has to be a difference, but uh, pretty much it's a mystery novel where in every chapter there's a particular crime scene. And Encyclopedia Brown, his name is Lee Roy, he observes the crime scene and he has to figure out who did it or what happened. And so the author, he sets everything up And then Leroy Brown, he closes his eyes and he goes, hmm. And then he goes, I know who did it, dot, dot, dot. And it says, turn to page 76 for the answer. And so the solution would be at the back of the book. And now as I would read this, I would grow so anxious. Upon this guarantee that your life is going to be brought into Christ's 
focus of power. Our actions aren't pushed by our ideas or pulled by something we believe in the future. You believe that you have hope that the future has blank for you. And because of that future hope, it changes you in the present. Paul's giving us the answer. He said, you want to be holy, you want to be blameless, and above reproach, be mesmerized and enamored and fixated on the certainty of the future, that future that says you will be perfect, you will be blameless, there will be no cancer, no depression, and you will be reconciled to Christ. Let that pull you, and it will change the way you live today. The author of that small book, The Little Prince, I have his name, I just can't pronounce it, so I'm not going to say it. Antoine Saint. He says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the people to collect the wood, and don't assign them tasks and work. But rather, teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Do you long for what Jesus is going to accomplish in your life? Long for this future hope. Is that the thought that you start with in the morning? In the thought that you end at night when you go to bed, regardless of how your grades end up, no matter where you were, no matter who you married, you know the end, and it is perfected reconciliation of this future glory that awaits you, that is being prepared for you. So that person. so will you. And as Jesus is sinless, so will you be. As Jesus was exalted in glory, so will you be. You will be so glorious. C.S. Lewis says, if you saw your future now, you would worship yourself. You'd be tempted to get on your knees. Do you know what awaits you? Now think about that test. Think about that traffic jam. Interesting person that you run into, believe it or not, it's going to be a creature. If you saw him, if you saw him, you'd be strongly tempted to worship him. Nothing you can do right now changes that. No matter how many times you mess up, no matter how often you neglect all the things that you should be doing as a son or daughter of God, nothing you do now changes that future. That's the hope. Once we truly believe that, that's when the resonance of Christ starts to, to intrude in our lives. You know, when I wrote those Encyclopedia Brown novels, as it turns out, I'm not the only one who does that. The University of California, San Diego, they did a psychological study, and in one of their journals, they actually correlated the people who know the spoilers of movies they enjoy them a lot more. There's a correlation there. It's what they call a theory of mind. It means that once you know the ending or the 
start to make connections, we have a much deeper understanding, and we have connections throughout the story. He says that once you know how it turns out, it's cognitively easier, you're more comfortable processing the information, and you can focus on a deeper understanding of the story. Let me Christianize that. Once you know the ending of your Christian and spiritual lives, it is comfortably easier to process all that God has given us. And you can focus on a deeper, intimate understanding of Jesus. What's our ending? It's this. The fullness of reconciliation. When you're glorified, resurrected, just as Christ was resurrected, Just as glorious, just as great as you first entered that chapter. 